0: Hello and welcome to the Plan a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Helm Roster. We're both certified arborists credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planning and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is being recorded on September 10th, 2021. Hal Rosner will not be joining us this week. He's on vacation. Allison Brown holds a PhD in botany from the University of California, Davis, where her research focused on the significance of mycorrhizal fungi in tidal salt marshes. She has taught courses in plant pathology at Temple University Ambler campus and Longwood Gardens in Kenneth Square, Pennsylvania and she is currently teaching biology at Delaware Valley University. Fungi often take center stage in Allison's lectures and have been the highlight of many great presentations, including those for Master Gardener programs, the New Jersey Mycological Association, and other mushroom clubs, as well as the American Chemical Society. Most recently, Allison gave a presentation entitled Villains in the Garden for the one symposium at Tyler Arboretum in Media, Pennsylvania where she introduced her audience to the parasitic fungi commonly associated with trees. Allison also leads mushroom hikes and enjoys exploring the culinary delights of local fungi. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Allison. We're delighted you can join us.
1: Well, thank you so much, Eva, for inviting me to join your podcast. I feel very honored, and I'm excited about talking more about fungi.
0: In all the years I've known you, I don't think I've ever asked you, how did you wind up becoming a biologist and a fungi lover? Well,
1: I took my first biology class at the College of Marin in California back in the 80s and decided that was the discipline for me. Uh, My focus shifted towards fungi while I was pursuing graduate research at Sonoma State University. I started leading field trips to areas of forested landscape in coastal California, having taken mycology and observed and collected fungi. It was kind of like an Easter egg hunt for me. It was so exciting. I also, during that time, met the fungal guru of California, whose name is David Aurora and Aurora is the author of a book called Mushrooms Demystified. The eccentricity of this book with its funny alliterative uh, descriptions of fungi, like the totally tedious tuberia or the lackluster lacaria, and yet it's detailed scientific methods for identifying fungi really got me hooked. Um, I, he was also a fascinating person to, to hike with. and taught me a little bit more about how mycologists tend to carry umbrellas and they carry umbrellas because of course fungi typically come up during the rainy months and especially in California we wait until the fall and winter and go on hikes which take us off the trail often so mycologists rarely walk a straight line. They zigzag across the trail, going into forests and clumps, looking for fungi. So that was just a lot of fun. But at that time, I was also interested in plants. and as you know, I, I got my PhD in botany, and much of that research was uh, devoted to the fungi that lived within plant roots. At that time, the study of these enigmatic symbiotic organisms was still a frontier of research. I ended up studying mycorrhizae under the direction of Dr. Caroline Bledsoe while pursuing my Ph.D. in botany at UC Davis.
0: Wow, that's exciting because a lot of us, even scientists, are just learning the tip of the iceberg when it comes to soil and what's in it and the microorganisms that make a healthy ecosystem. I know that you have been heavily involved in tidal areas where you're looking at mycorrhiza, but... The idea that there is an organism that's connecting other organisms is astonishing to many people. And plants don't sit in isolation. They're actually interconnected. And now they're finding out, of course, plants communicate. We all, we all kind of deep down might have known that they communicate, but fungi are a big part of that, aren't they? Yes,
1: they are. For example, trees absolutely depend on fungi. For many purposes for one fungi play a role in recycling materials shed by the trees through the decomposition of bark leaves and other woody debris the partly decomposed products include duff which acts as a moist protective layer of organic material that we see on the forest floor that duff is further digested by fungi and other helpers liberating nutrients needed by the trees so when we think about fungi we may visualize mushrooms but most of their work is unseen and that's what's so exciting is that there's this whole underground world that we're still as you described learning about and recognizing its importance in addition to that Fungi play an important role by forming these mutually beneficial partnerships with trees. Mycorrhizae, which literally means fungus root, are formed when tiny fungal hyphae, these are thread-like cells, form a mycelium. And the mycelium is the body of the fungus. So a mushroom is made up of a mycelium, the button mushrooms you see in the supermarket is made up of mycelium and the underground portions that extend from that mushroom into the soil and into organic matter is also made of mycelium. These fungus root associations are formed when these tiny thread-like hyphae wrap around the roots and root cells forming sometimes visually obvious clubs in the roots. So you may have seen these before when you're uh, excavating trees that are mycorrhizal. They're often diagnostically used to identify the fungus based on the shapes of these little clubs, these stumpy looking roots. So that stump is really all um, caused by the fungus in its interaction with the root. The other type of fungus is actually entering the root cells. And so we have the ectomycorrhizae, which are external primarily of the cells and the root surface, and the endomycorrhizae, which enter the root cells. Those root cells have membranes within them where the hyphae, form tree-like structures that interact in a sort of a molecular dialogue with the plant roots. It's fascinating to see these, but you'd only see them under a microscope compared to the ectomycorrhizal roots we just talked about. So that dialogue is taking place between two partners, really in almost a marriage. The hyphae-enhanced nutrient uptake water um, access to the tree, and the tree in turn transfers carbohydrates through photosynthesis, the fungus. David Reed in England determined that there can be up to 263 feet of hyphae associated with a single half-inch segment of a tree root.
0: Wow, that's amazing. (laughs) You, You almost can't Bath bath. Have, it's, it's equivalent to about two times the length of a
1: basketball court, one root and one hypha. So imagine what that means for the entire root system. So these hyphae extend the surface area of the root, enabling the system to access nutrients and make exchanges deep into the soil. They're also like an Internet, as you described earlier, connecting trees and weaving also through a metropolis of nematodes, worms, bacteria, and many other microorganisms. And facilitate by that means a multi-directional transfer of nutrients. And those nutrients can include carbon, nitrogen, and phosphorus, as well as hormones, and other compounds. Some of these compounds are facilitating growth by neighboring trees. Some of the compounds are facilitating flowering periods so that trees actually are signaled to flower uh, at the same time. Um, I highly recommend learning more about the work that Suzanne Smard has done. Her book, Finding the Mother Tree, Is excellent. She really brings together uh, cutting edge science and the core beliefs of indigenous people, saying that really at the center of a healthy forest stands a mother tree, an old growth matriarch that acts as a hub, nutrients shared by trees of different ages and species linked together via a vast underground fungal network.
0: Emil, I was just getting this visual when you were talking about the mother tree. I was thinking of a mom standing in her kitchen, preparing all the food, setting the table and putting everything out for her children to eat. Uh, That was my visual. As soon as you said mother tree, it makes me smile when I hear that. It makes me smile to know that there is a mother tree. And I know from my own experience that uh mother trees can die or do die and when they do die they leave themselves for the rest of the community to feed off of
1: yeah that's correct
0: that in itself is such an unselfish act to be able to continue on after you're gone (laughs) that you're (laughs) continuing to feed that's what we we kind of miss we look at the forest and we walk in a woodland We see these trees and a lot of times we don't understand their actual function and the importance and the interconnectivity between the trees. You bringing the topic up of fungi and you being here today talking about fungi, they're almost like the networkers for the plant communities. When you talk about fungi, some people get really upset when they see a fungi near a tree or around a tree or on a tree, what, are we, what, what should we be thinking about when we are looking at a, f- a fruiting body of a fungi? Oh, that's an excellent question. There are fungi
1: that we specifically look for that are mycorrhizal with trees. As we said earlier form this network underground and associate with trees and by knowing the tree species we can sometimes locate the fungus so those of us interested in foraging should become acquainted with both partners knowing what to look for and when then there are the bad guys so in terms of detrimental fungi we can see them sometimes in forms that take place either on the tree itself or at the base of the tree, near or near the base of the tree. They are sometimes seen as forms that are obvious, like conch's uh, shelf fungi, for example. conks are woody shelf fungi, and you can see those on the tree. And if you look at a fungus, you'll see that there's a, a cap, a spore-bearing surface, and a stem, and most of the fungi we see growing near a tree would be considered mushrooms, and they would have this central stalk. In the shelf mushrooms, the stalk is the tree, so the the shelf no longer needs that stalk because the tree serves that function, and now you have a spore-bearing surface which can deliver spores to other areas, to other trees. Sometimes these conchs or, or shelf fungi are beneficial in that they decompose. So you were talking about the mother tree earlier, that decomposition can take place in the presence of these shelf mushrooms. So we can see those mushrooms in the fall, sometimes or in any time of the year when a tree has already been felled and you can see them growing along the edge of the, sh- of the tree. Many different kinds of fungi, the ones that we see I just mentioned on, on the surfaces of tree that are very obvious, Um, Some of them aren't so obvious. There's more than 800 species of fungi that are pathogenic on trees. The seeds or cup fungi are the most villainous of the pathogenic fungi. Uh, These can wreak devastation as evidenced by Dutch elm disease and chestnut blight. Now what we're seeing isn't the fungus, but rather the symptoms that the fungus is causing. Um, which is different. We think about in plant pathology, we think about symptoms and signs. Signs are the fungus we see. The symptoms are the the disease manifestations of that fungus. We've talked about Dutch elm disease and chestnut blight. Probably everyone, all of our listeners have heard of those diseases. One of your speakers, uh, Sarah Fern Fitzsimmons, spoke of the immense importance of the chestnut trees to people from cradle to grave. Entire forests were decimated by this disease. And we'd be lucky to see in current times a stunted shrub like you know, remains of a tree. We might be able to know that there's a fungus just based on the canker that forms. So cankers are sometimes symptoms, and they can be signs. If you look really closely, you can see fungal fruiting bodies inside a canker. These cankers in the chestnut blight are actually entering wounds and then the fungus ramifies throughout the bark, eventually blocking the cambium, which is essential for the growth of twigs, branches and trunks. So in effect, the fungus is strangling the tree so it can't grow to form its former statuesque height and remarkable girth. In Dutch elm disease, the fungus enters the pipes that carry water, the xylem that carry water from the roots to the leaves in the canopy, which is evidenced by wilt and dieback. Again, if you look at stumps and trees that have been impacted by Dutch elm disease, you'll see the fungal fruiting bodies they need a, uh, a magnifying glass. We often carry magnifying glasses to see the fungi when we're walking in a forested landscape or even in an arboretum to know if there's a fungus present. But the ones we spoke of earlier that are really obvious are those club fungi, and they can be the most notorious offenders that people can see very easily. For example, a shoestring root rot. This is a disease caused by this species of armillaria. Uh, The fungi are evidenced by telltale honey-colored mushrooms at the base of the tree. And so that's one of the signs that you can see very easily. And then they also produce these very dramatic black rhizomorphs, which are essentially thick mycelial threads that are encased in a melanistic rind, giving that common called shoestring appearance. So those shoestrings can lead to the development of butt rot and you can tell because of their location at the base of the tree
0: right
1: but they can you know cause heartwood decay and over time advance into the sapwood and bark um, leading to decline and death. Those shoestrings can ramify throughout the forested community kind of as we talked about, the a hypo highway going from one tree to the next, causing devastation now in this case. Everyone may have heard of the humongous fungus. So here's one that we might be able to see from an aerial photo, not necessarily the fungus itself, but The impact it has on forested ecosystems specifically one um, that's of note is in the Malher National Forest in Oregon and this organism produces genetically similar genets which are genetically similar fungi that again move from one location to the next several of these are extremely large and There's one that weighs up to 400 tons and is said to be older than Christianity itself. So, wow. (laughs) Remarkably huge fruiting body, evidence of fruiting bodies, again, if you see the effect they have on forested ecosystems
0: isn't that also why it's important that we be mindful of what we destroy when we're building and constructing that we understand what's happening underground and what's happening above ground and that maybe we have an unusual area that should never be touched because it is one of those large organisms that's working to work with the ecosystem
1: yeah interestingly enough sometimes these are regulators of tree populations so we think of them as a negative factor in the health of a tree and of the tree of a forested ecosystem however in the absence of for example prescribed burns and natural fire we see more disease and disease caused by fungi is a, is a way to regulate populations keeping them at bay, if you have a crowd of Douglas fir, a monoculture of Douglas fir, there's more likelihood you're going to see disease in those trees. You need diversity. If you choose a home in a forested area, you want to make sure that that area is obviously cleared of debris to prevent fire, but that there's diversity there, that you don't just have a monoculture. Because now if you do, you're at risk, some of these trees being very flammable too. Thinking about that, we should think about ways to build our homes to really reduce our impact and be sensible. And what, Where do you want to build your home? Do you want to build it right next to an area that's um, potentially a fire-controlled habitat?
0: I think that's really good. And especially with what's going on out in California and in Oregon, Washington state, we think that fire is bad all the time, but it's not. It's it's a way to control undergrowth. And some trees are, are and I don't want to say dirty because trees aren't dirty, they are dropping what they can't use. Uh-huh. And uh, I think Humans are dirty the dirtiest species on earth, but that's beside the point. Um, (laughs) The fact of the matter is that, that trees drop because they're refreshing themselves, but they're also getting rid of things that they no longer need and could actually act as a source of nutrient again if they're broken down, right?
1: Exactly, yeah. So we often want to sanitize our living environment by breaking leaves, for example. I admit that I want to break the leaves. It just seems like a a, a visual blight sometimes. But these leaves, when they decompose, especially by virtue of the fungal activity and other organisms, insects and worms, that nutrient material in the leaf is is being recycled and it is nourishing that tree. So you really have a cycle that should be maintained in a harmonious way. Now we just introduce, for example, wood chips and mulch to sort of serve that function in the absence of a more natural byproduct of trees shedding parts and leaves and branches. So we remove that material and we replace it with material we buy. You can do it yourself though. I mean you can use I use compost from my compost bin to mulch um, my trees and other plants in the garden really more attractive way than leaving the leaves on the ground and I've got my neighbor has a she has a holly tree and the holly tree sheds its leaves and they're terrible if I'm walking barefoot I have to break the leaves but I've noticed if I leave them it takes a long time for them to decompose they eventually um you can pick up the leaves and you can see the fungal tissue mats forming and I've gotten amazing compost from these leaves. And this is how the tree is is accessing nutrients again. So by raking them, I have to get rid of them, but I'm putting them in a place where I know they can still serve that function.
0: I was thinking when you were talking about how long it takes to break down a holly, and you think of where hollies are native to, like in sandy soils where... There might not be a lot of organic material, so having a leaf that takes a long time to break down would be very beneficial for the tree so that it doesn't lose all the nutrients and just disappear right away, whereas what we would classify as a regular hardwood forest, the leaves break down much quicker because, you know, it would be too thick there and there's, there's a lot of organic yeah. material to begin with. So there's a lot of things to think about when you're thinking about forests and fungi and the type of plants that you have. But I, I really think the most important takeaway that you have been talking about is you near know, the diversity that's important. Very little diversity. We actually are hurting ourselves and our ecosystems around us because the monoculture, if you will, or die culture doesn't allow for enough activity to occur. And that's where we, we run into serious issues. It's challenging because we, we have our charismatic
1: trees that we want to see. And I think also, I'm just looking out my window, I've got uh, a blue spruce. And we talk about right plant, right place. That blue spruce really doesn't seem happy where it is right now. So choosing trees, if we are going to plant them based on their preference for specific location and environmental habitat and climatic requirements is really, really important. So if you do plant trees, you should be really aware of their needs. Um, and that will also help to prevent disease and incre- increase diversity if you can by planting a number of different trees of different stature partnering them in a way that can also benefit an inner inter- interchange um, underground.
0: I think that's a, that's a really good point. And also, what about the difference in heights and the widths of plants? Does that make a difference too? Well, if you look at
1: monocultures, very often you see really small trees of narrow diameter. And for forestry, those are less desirable. And that's, Close proximity not only yields a inferior product if you're harvesting the tree, you're also increasing the likelihood of disease occurring, a transport of disease between one tree and the next. So these are also considerations when growing or planting your trees is to in recognize how much space is needed between them to increase airflow, for example, um, to reduce uh, spore transport from one tree to, an, to the next. I was talking to you about my lilac trees, which are famous for attracting, um, I guess it's really a shrub, isn't it?
0: It can be a shrub or a tree, but there are lilac trees with a single trunk. But then most of the time we think of them as large, very large shrubs. They can be 30 feet tall yeah. or 25 feet tall. So I've uh, I've
1: got one that's just nestled in the corner of my backyard, um, next to a hydr of a snowball hydrangea, and it's not getting enough air circulation. So it's a prime candidate for powdery mildew. And I'm grateful to know that I can actually move that into an open area where it's not only going to get. Better air circulation, but more light as well, and perhaps reduce its tendency to form, uh, to to become impacted by powdery mildew.
0: Those are all considerations that maybe most people don't think about when they're planting. When you're planting, you need to think about everything, not not just the fact that you're putting it there, but what's around it as well. Another thing to
1: consider to be on the lookout for are. We talked about these conchs that form on trees that are evidence of wood rot taking place. You should be aware of that in your backyard uh, and the sidewalks near your home, near your car, because these fungi can cause um, hazard trees. And the way they do that is really interesting. The conch that we see is the mushroom on the tree is liberating spores. Now, spores are like seeds in a way that um, land on wounds in the tree and germinate, forming a mycelium. What this mycelium does is it invades the internal backbone of the tree, the heartwood of the tree, spreading along its horizontal and vertical axes. So infected trees become weakened and can easily be blown over by wind presenting the hazard i just mentioned so this is something you should be aware of to be always on the lookout for problematic trees and recognizing even though they're beautiful sometimes we have to take the aggressive method of removing them because of you know urban or suburban setting they do present a hazard i'm fascinated by just the results of these um, wood decay fungi. I, I don't mean to glamorize the fungus, but they can do two kinds of rot. Um, one of them is called cubicle brown rot, and the fungi that do that are, for example, the um, artist conchs. So the beautiful artist conch invades the tree and it um, digests the cellulosic compounds in the heartwood, leaving these brown chunks. Uh, they- what we would describe as yes. tubes. And you yes, might have seen yes. that when you look at a felt tree, that's caused by very often, not always, caused by some of these conks that we described. On the other hand, we also have white rot fungi, which are fascinating. These digest the lignin of the tree. Now the lignin is a complex polymer that forms the structural components of woody tissue. It's the only wood decay fungus that has evolved to break down lignin. In fact, it's the only organism that has evolved to break down lignin. Wow, that's... And in its wake, it leaves a white mass of cellulose. So it does the opposite of what our conks might do. And the one I wanted to talk about, sulfur tufts. It's bright orange. We see it in later months in the summer and early fall and it is a white rot fungus. We very gratefully harvest to put on the table. They're quite edible and to some very delicious, but it's a devastating disease to the tree. By removing it, you're not removing the disease. You're not removing the mycelium. Right. So people ask me, well, can I make that conch or that mushroom and will the tree survive? No. Now, by the time you see
0: it, it's too late. All right, there you go. and Which brings us to the fruiting bodies themselves, and you've been talking about that. We we like to eat them when we see them and they're edible, but what are some of the fungi that are associated specifically to certain trees? When we think of like pine trees have certain uh, fungi that are near them. There are um, a number
1: of fungi that are host-specific. We talk about hosts. Usually, think about the plant that is the subject of the attack by an organism. In the the specific group of fungi, we consider the rusts. Now, rusts and club fungi are both examples of. Um, I'm sorry, rusts and shelf fungi are both examples of club fungi or basidiomycetes. But rusts, unlike The shell fungi are highly species specific. For example, cedar apple rust. Um, This fungus enjoys two hosts, red cedar and apple or crab apple. The first year the fungus attacks the leaves of the apple tree, for example and the apple as well. So you can see evidence, you can see signs sometimes and symptoms of um, sort of the apples become kind of contorted and you see some cavities in the apples that are colonized by fungi. And that's that first year. And then in towards the second year, what happens is the spores that are produced by the fungus in the apple or from the leaves are spread to a red cedar. And those fungal spores begin to form a gall. They stimulate a response in the plant. The plant is really saying, you know, it's almost like a tumor is saying, hey, you know, I want to get rid of you. And in fact, they're creating the perfect environment for these fungi to, shoot, to produce these telial horns. And the telial horns are bright orange. And we talked about how to know, how do we see, what's evidence of a fruiting body? Well, there's another example of a fruiting body that is really obvious. We see these usually in the spring. And you and I have been out in the woods and have spotted these orange balls in juniper trees. And they're fascinating to look at. Generally, they're more of a, I should tell you, you can easily control them. Right you right. can easily prune tree and remove that disease organism you can also you can remove the the the, the galls but you can also be sensible about where you plant your uh, apple trees at least 2 miles away to prevent the next phase where the spores leave those orange galls and go back to the apple tree so it's a cycle takes two years, and they go back and forth between
0: apple and and cedar. And, and that's why far farmers who raise apples are always looking to make sure that there are no cedar trees in their hedgerows or anything like that that's going to affect their fruit. Wow, there's so much here that we can cover, Allison, and we're coming up on time. But I think that the idea of talking about fungi and knowing how important they are to the relationship with trees. It's just another way for us to understand that trees are very complex and they attract a lot of different types of other organisms that they need to not only grow as big as they do, but also to actually break them down when they die. And the the uh, fungi does everything from life life to death, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah,
1: that's right. Cradle to grave.
0: And uh, I think that's that's really a, one of the fascinating things about fungi that a lot of people may not realize that they are decomposers as well as creating these wonderful edible fruiting bodies that we can we can enjoy, but also help a plant to be fed and uh, bring in that nutrients especially phosphorus which is really difficult for a plant to get out of the soil that fungi is able to help it pass the barrier the cell get into the cells and help it to be utilized within the tree yeah they literally
1: produce enzymes the fungi produce enzymes like as we do in our on our stomachs we produce enzymes in our digestive tract um, the fungi secrete enzymes And in secreting them, they help to digest organic matter that then liberates, for example, phosphorus and nitrate. So that's one of the specific ways that those nutrients become available to the plants is through these enzymes secreted by the fungi.
0: We always ask this question. I know Hal's not here this week because he's on vacation, but I just wanted to ask our favorite question that we, we ask all of our guests. Is there a specific group of trees or tree that you absolutely adore? I really love sycamore
1: trees. I live in, um, along the Delaware River, so I've become very fond of the trees we see in riparian zones. Uh, I love sycamores. and I've grown very fond of silver maple. I'm going back to my days in California, uh, my redwood trees, sequoia sempervirens. I absolutely love and the bristlecone pines in California are fascinating. And again, these are some of the oldest organism, um, tree organisms on Earth.
0: But there's also a sense of place about what you picked. You, the, the trees that you see on a regular basis where you live now along the Delaware, which are the sycamore and the silver maple, which... Not many people have an affinity for the silver maple in particular because they say, oh, it's a junk tree. But no, there's no such thing as a junk tree. Every tree has a function. And you talk about the redwood and the bristlecone pine that are so iconic for the West Coast. So the sense of place, I think, is important when we talk about trees. Also, you know, that the whole idea of what a tree does for the sense of place. And without them, they the place doesn't feel the same. Right.
1: And uh, it's it's also interesting to see how they endure the uh, hazards that are part of our changes in our environment, hurricanes. And I just witnessed, um, I saw it. I went to a friend's house whose area was literally decimated by the Hurricane Ida. And I found sycamore that had just been moved, essentially, by the raging water. I mean, literally, we're talking a force that is inscribable. The water came rushing in as a flash flood, and that tree was bending over, but it still endured. It still hung strong because of those immense roots that anchor it to the the ground. That's why I could sit and look at a, a, a sycamore tree for literally hours. I have done that. While looking at it and looking up and just being amazed by its fortitude and curious shapes. and so I, I guess that is probably up there and you know the top of my favorite trees. I love tulip poplars too. Uh, we don't see them as often here, but I just they're just statuesque, beautiful trees. Uh, I love the bark of a tulip poplar trees, but I think sycamores are at the top.
0: Well, I really am delighted that we could have you today on the, on the podcast. You, you're very inspirational, and you have so many wonderful ideas when you're out in the wild. I've been out with, with you on walks and looking at different things, and you've influenced my life as a teacher and uh, as a horticulturalist, and, and I want to thank you for that, and thank you for being on our show today.
1: Oh, you are so welcome, and I have to thank you, too because I think there's a symbiosis between us that you just <laughs> described that we're exchanging knowledge and also a kinship with our natural world. And I certainly have enjoyed my walks with you and look forward to those in the future. Thank you
0: so much, Eva. Super. Thank you so much, Allison. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromeda Recordings in Hollywood, California.